I'm Brooke Donevsky, and welcome to Charity Talks. Today I spoke with Jennifer Hyman, the Director of Communications for Living Goods, an Africa-based charity that is focused on providing healthcare solutions to underserved communities. Living Goods has partnered with local governments to create a network of community health workers and empowered them with technology, funding, and medicine. That's making a huge difference in medical outcomes for the communities that they serve. I hope you enjoy listening to Jennifer describe the great work that Living Goods does. I'm here with Jennifer Hyman, the Director of Communications at Living Goods. Jennifer, thank you so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure, Brooke. Could you talk a little bit about your background and how you got involved with Living Goods? Sure. I have been doing strategic communications on human rights issues and international development issues for about 25 years. So uh, very briefly started doing human rights work, spent three years as a journalist in China, came back to the U.S. to run a magazine about about HIV AIDS. And the past 18 plus years, I've headed communications departments for a number of major international relief and development organizations. And can you tell us a little bit about Living Goods' mission? Yeah. So our goal is really to ensure that every person, no matter where they live, has access to accessible and affordable and quality health services. So we work to support and empower government community health workers, mostly in Africa, to give them the digital technology, the equipment, the um, medical um, treatments they need, and also the supervision so that they can reach families wherever they live and save lives. Yeah, and you already started to address it, but what are some of the challenges that these community health workers typically face in effectively serving their communities? And how does Living Goods help combat these challenges? Sure. So throughout much of the world, even in the United States, but certainly in many of the places that we work, which is primarily in Kenya and Uganda, and we have some operations in West Africa as well. But a lot of the services are hard for people to reach. Health services are inaccessible or they might be expensive. People have to queue for days to actually get seen in line for treatment. And so what we do is work to train ordinary people like you or me um, with some basic medical training. And by providing them with an app, with digital technology, we're able to take the guesswork out of medical care and ultimately help ensure that highly deadly but easily treatable diseases can be dealt with at someone's home and that people who need priority medical attention can actually be seen in a priority manner. So we really help to better manage those resources. There had been community health workers in Africa long before we got involved, but a lot of it was paper-based and people only received one training and then they're on their own. They also didn't have any medicine. So oftentimes what they were doing is really just trying to be a triage point to say, oh, here's a referral. Yes, your child is actually sick. Go and get treatment. Now they have rapid malaria tests. They have malaria treatments. They have antidiarrheals. They have amoxicillin for treating pneumonia. And this means that a huge proportion of people who might otherwise never receive care are actually able to be treated and followed up with at home. Yeah, and speaking of technology, I think that technology can play a huge role in improving the lives of marginalized people. So can you tell us a little bit more about the technology that Living Goods uses to improve so many lives? Absolutely. So we started uh, 
a long time ago, I want to say, it's not even that long ago, but let's say in 2015, we just started using mobile phones with SMS, but we moved into a, uh, into an effort to use uh, smartphones um, with an organization called Medic Mobile. That's a strong partner of us and we of ours. And we built this mobile platform that is now open source. It's available. The code could be used by any anyone. And it's not so much the application, it's having an application that allows for real-time monitoring. So there's a variety of things this technology enables, both for community health workers, for the, the people who supervise them, and ultimately for government. So at the household level, for an individual community health worker, they're able to register everybody in their catchment on the phone, all the pregnancies, they know when a woman is about to give birth. If they visit a young child who has suspected malaria and treats positive and has to go to a clinic, they get a prompt on their phone to follow up within 48 hours. The guesswork is taken out. We've also moved into immunization and, and family planning services as well. So we're able to close the gap of people who have defaulted or have zero dose and have never gotten an immunization and get them there, get them vaccinated on time, provide women importantly with access to contraceptives, um, which, you know, you can imagine that anywhere in the world, if a young girl has a child as a teenager, she's more likely to have that second child and the third child and never get yeah. her college education. So being able to provide those services easily and without requiring medical attention is something that's critical. But meanwhile, for supervisors, being able to manage a large workforce remotely and see who is meeting or failing on key performance indicators. So we set out basic targets for what kind of services are expected that each community health worker, let's say, supports 100 households. And she might be given a target of registering X number of new pregnancies or assessing or treating X number of children. So we can monitor and see who needs more or less support, who could be a mentor for others because she's succeeding. And then at the government level, it's about providing those data insights so that ultimately government can manage this independently and sustainably. How can you budget and operationalize your own community health work workforce if you don't have the data to know what's actually happening in the communities? So we're able to give those insights and push them directly to governments so that they can take action themselves. Yeah, and I think that data-driven solutions to problems are so significant because they can help you quantify a problem and figure out how to effectively address it. Can you tell us about some of the randomized controlled trials that Living Good has run? Yeah, sure. So we had one primary randomized controlled trial back in 2014, and that was in our operations only in Uganda. We hadn't moved into Kenya at that point, and that showed a 27% reduction in childhood mortality using our approaches. We had started a second randomized control trial that had to pause it because of COVID. And obviously there are certain activities that are higher or lower touch. And as we continue our services, we've worked to make sure that we protect community health workers and the communities they serve while delivering the highest impact work. So we have been looking at other ways in addition to randomized control trials to tell that story of impact because we're obsessed with data and we, we put together stakeholder reports every quarter. We're constantly doing this investigation of what the numbers mean, but we're ultimately using it to, to save lives. And how do we tell that, that narrative with the data in a more meaningful way? So that's something we're constantly pushing ourselves to figure out how to really, for example, compare the findings that we're seeing with government data to see that, for example, as during this time, there's been a huge decline in government services for some of these essential, for malaria, diarrhea, pneumonia, and other kinds of issues. 
we're seeing an increase or, or you know, sustaining or increasing those numbers through our projects. So really it shows the value of investing in community health, not just for an emergency, but just for, for life because these deaths will continue and they could be much worse at a time when stra- when resources are even greater strained during a pandemic. Yeah, of course. And I know that getting governments to fund programs and more importantly pay the community health workers can be a challenge in itself. So how does Living Goods ensure that health workers are compensated? That's yeah, great question. So in addition to our operations, we have a number of different ways of working. We traditionally had what we called our direct operations, which we're still very close partnerships with government. They were always government community health workers. We always worked to align with government and we had staff seconded. In other words, we sort of loaned staff to government, but we increasingly developed a couple of, we've developed a model that is more of a co-financed approach with government. So for example, in Isiolo, Kenya, which I've been to, and it's a very large nomadic region um, in Northern Kenya, um, we are working with the government. We've co-financed the execution and delivery of all community health services, meaning that government is now directly responsible for procuring all of the medicine and for compensating community health workers. And we developed a second partnership like this in a place called Kasumu, um, which uh, fun side point, the, the governor of Kasumu, uh, his, he's the father of Lupita Nyong'o, um, the, the Kenyan film actress who I'm sure you're well, well aware of. So. At any rate, we are now co-financing community health in Kisumu. And we just started our first co-finance partnership in Uganda in a place called Oyam with the Malaria Consortium. So we ultimately see this as a model that we want to expand upon because especially in a country like Kenya where donors are pulling out, it's now classified as a low and middle income country. So they can't rely on traditional development and donor assistance in the same way. We're not doing any favors by you know, by not giving them the opportunity to pay for these services themselves. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's, it's a challenge, but I think we're also seeing some great, uh, some great progress in government ownership. And second, sorry for being wordy, but um, we also have something called, uh, we've tried something called results-based financing, which we're doing in Uganda, but it's a pilot. where basically, we buy down the risk of investing in community health by only getting paid for results that an independent third party verifies. So rather than just touch, trusting the results that you can see on the apps, they, they make calls. They thought they make sure that, that what was said, what was documented in an app actually happened. And then we as, as the implementer get paid afterwards. But that creates a new model for government where it buys down the risk of putting their budget towards this kind of work because they know they can be guaranteed with results. Yeah, that's interesting. It really shows this idea of responsibility and holding organizations accountable, which I think is so important. And you've already talked a lot about it, but could you get more into some of the specific projects and programs that Living Goods is currently working on? Sure. So in general, we work on what's known as ICCM which is a long acronym for like integrated comprehensive community care for childhood illnesses. I'm giving you the wrong description of the acronym, but basically those issues I was talking about of malaria, diarrhea, and pneumonia, which are the biggest killers of children under five. And we really work almost exclusively with children under five and their mothers or mothers to be. So there are certainly needs for community health throughout the general population, older men, et cetera. That's not the focus of what we do. Um, and we do that alongside 
the addition of family planning and immunization services. So we only started doing family planning in 2018. It was new for us. And in you got we, we have to work in a way that accords with local government regulations. So it's not the same in every country. So for example, in Uganda, we, in addition to condoms and birth control pills and plan B, uh, next day pregnant emergency contraceptives, we have something called cyanopress, which is an intramuscular injectable that can be given by a community health worker to a woman at last for three months. And while we certainly encourage male engagement and family planning, this is the kind of thing a woman can do on her own without anyone knowing that it's happening. So it puts more choice in the hands of a woman. That's not yet approved in Kenya, but we're doing in concert with government an experiment to try it out. And we're also piloting self-injection in Uganda. So can a woman actually just give herself the shot because it's not a complicated needle. It was developed in a way that could be easily done by yourself and it's just under the skin. So those are really the vehicles through which we're working. But we're also working, I would say, we've done some work in uh, Sierra Leone and Burkina Faso, very specifically on COVID. So we've helped the governments to develop uh, Sentinel surveillance, WhatsApp tools, really using our expertise in digital technology and pushing out messages um, both to get people tested to make sure that they are they know how to protect themselves and that the government is armed with tools so that they can really help better leverage community health to take care of COVID. Yeah, definitely. I feel like everyone is seeing recently how telemedicine and just using different types of technology to help with treatment and help with the, this whole process is so important. So I think that it's amazing how Living Goods keeps up with this modern understanding of the world and technology. And how does Living Goods identify high impact health needs at the community level? So a lot of that is really getting done in concert with government. Now, obviously we don't deal with, we, we know that the things that we're working on are the biggest killers of children under five. And certainly maternal health falls deeply in there, especially immediately after delivery. Newborns and women who have just postpartum mothers are at some of the highest risks for mortality. So really prioritizing the greatest mortality risk with our services. That That's not to say that we're not looking at other working with government to figure out how we may or may expand the, um, the basket of services a community health worker could provide, whether that's to provide services for older adults or to get into communicable, uh, um, non-communicable diseases or even HIV AIDS. We've done an experiment on HIV. We have something called our innovation network. We had worked to do, to close the loop on referrals. So basically somebody uh, would get a referral at the community level. And we wanted to be able to close the loop with the facility so it was digitized. So we knew that if we said this person needs to go to the facility, the facility could electronically stamp that they went, what they did, and it would go back to the community level for follow-up. And we did some of that specific to HIV as well. But right now that's not our primary focus because it's not our area of greatest expertise, nor is it really the greatest, most pressing health issue. And we're trying to find that balance of what can people with limited training do in a way that will really drive the greatest impact. And while there's a lot of health needs people have, not all of them can be treated at the community level. So figuring out um, how best to use those limited resources to save lives. And having access to medications can be a huge issue in some countries. And I know that Living Goods works to make sure that essential medicines are always available. So. How do you go about doing this? 
Yeah. So it's been um, a journey and it's even, it's continues to be a journey um, as we work to transition to government ownership of some of these efforts. So we've always been able to ensure that we've developed supply chains of our own on the continent that ensure that community health workers are in stock 100% of the time when we are in charge of the supply chain. And we've even built in functionality into the phones and into our own reporting system so we can see and prevent against stockouts. And we, we have a very robust system. But ultimately, if the goal is government ownership, we can't keep managing all of that. And so it's been challenging, um, but it's an opportunity for growth. So for example, in Isiolo, which I mentioned, the government is now responsible for procuring all these medicines. There have been challenges at times, but we're we're trying, although our contract enables us to fill the gap if needed, we're trying to find ways to support government to figure it out because it's not going to be sustainable if we just solve it. Secondly, we're also working to make sure that community health workers have the right treatments at their hands and that we provide the evidence base to government so that they can they can effectively do their job. So as I described with the Cyana Press, trying to convince government that this is worthwhile putting this this injectable into women's hands, or at least the community health workers' hands. Until late last year, we never had the ability to treat pneumonia with amoxicillin in Kenya. We were doing it in, in Uganda, but it was not approved for community-level treatment, which meant that if somebody was found to have pneumonia, they still had to get to the clinic. So we actually spent quite a bit of time using our own data and doing advocacy and bringing in other supporters and thought leaders to lobby the Kenyan government over a period of years and it was just approved to use amoxicillin at the community level, which is just a huge win. So, you know, ultimately that's the sustainable way forward. Yeah. And on a more personal level, how have you seen the impact that Living Goods has made? Mm, yeah. I mean, I, I have been so lucky and blessed to have spent so, many, so much time visiting our programs. Apologies for these little blips. All good. <laughs> Um, but up until COVID was happening, I was traveling every three months or so to visit our programs and to document them and, uh, following the, the journeys of households of individual community health workers and communities. And I've been so inspired to see, um, the agency and the power this brings to communities, the community health workers themselves. I could send you videos of some of them. I mean, they become, they're, they're no, it's called Masawa. Uh, being it's like doctor women are women who are community health workers are referred to as doctor walking down the street they have a position of prominence and um, I think that for for a household to know that they can effectively care for their children even if they don't have a lot of money that is also uplifting and gives you hope so I have been consistently um, just blown away these you know we think about what it means to go door to door in our neighborhoods and in, in Westchester where you live or in Washington, DC, where I live. And, you know, Hey, I've got neighbors right down the hall. You go to a place like Isiolo, you could be walking three miles, an unpaved road through Bramble and to get to that next household. There could be conflict along the way to get to that next household. So there's an incredible commitment that community health workers make to their communities. And most of them don't do it for whatever compensation they do. They receive. They do it just because they want to make a difference. And that is inspiring. You know, I get goosebumps. And for me, as a communicator, it's always, what's the goosebump factor? You know, are people really making a difference? Do I feel it in the pit of my soul? And when I see our programs, I know we are making that impact. And that's all I want in a career and, you know, the, the things that I contribute to. 
Yeah, I think that's amazing. And how can people best get involved? Well, please follow us on social media. We have uh, active Facebook and Twitter pages. Um, and hopefully we can put those up on your screen. Afterwards. Definitely. So our website is constantly updated. Um, and just get involved and learn more about community health. There's a lot of great partner organizations that we work with as well, like the Community Health Impact Coalition. Um, and, you know, just follow what we're doing and, and really advocate for community health, not just overseas, but in the United States. I think if we've learned anything from coronavirus, it's that it's a great equalizer. And, you know, we all have needs for community health. Even in the most developed countries, there are real challenges with accessing quality health care. So considering this, even the United States and advocating for it would make great inroads. Yeah. And lastly, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? I'm just really inspired that, you know, as someone in high school, you know, that you're already thinking about these issues. And I think it's so important. I know that when I was your age, I got the inspiration and excitement to do mission driven work for my career. And, you know, I hope that the series that you're leading, I hope that's inspirational. And I encourage everyone who's listening to find something that mean that matters to you and to dedicate your life to it because it will never feel like work if you're making a difference. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I, again, I really appreciate your time. So thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure.